Well, friends, would you turn in the scriptures to 2 Chronicles chapter 21? And uh, my text this evening is the words of verses 12 to 15, although we will uh, consider the whole chapter and look at it in its historical context as well. Uh, Verses 12 to 15 are the words of a letter from Elijah. Uh, Let me just read these words to you. And there came a writing to him from Elijah the prophet, saying, Thus saith the Lord God of of David thy father, because thou hast not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat thy father, nor in the ways of Asa king of Judah, but hast walked in the way of the king of Israel, kings of Israel, and hast made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to go whoring like the wardens of the house of Ahab, and also hast slain thy brethren of thy father's house, which were better than thyself. Behold, with a great plague will the Lord smite thy people and thy children and thy wives and all thy goods, and thou shalt have great sickness by disease of thy, uh, of thy bowels until thy bowels fall out by reason of the sickness day by day. Now those are terrible words, aren't they? And they're words of the prophet Elijah. Now how do they come? Because by now Elijah had died. So where did the letter come from? Well, hold on, we'll give the answer to that in a moment or two. But let me give you a little bit of the background and the history of this chapter and the context of this. Where here we find, um, of course, as we read through the Old Testament, we find that after the breakup of the kingdoms into the northern and the southern kingdoms, many of the kings, uh, sadly both of the north and the south, were very wicked men. Now, there were one or two good kings. King Asa was one good King Asa, he is often called. Uh, There was uh, Jehoshaphat, who was a good king. Uh, There There was young Josiah, who was a good king. And uh, for part of his reign, at least Joash was a a fairly good king. He came to the the kingdom when he was only seven years old. Sadly, he didn't uh, continue in the way as he should have done. But by and large, many of the others were very wicked, very and grossly wicked. And the king we're going to consider this evening in uh, chapter 21, Jehoram, was another very wicked king. But he was king of the southern kingdom of Judah, not the northern tribes. He was Jehoshaphat's son. Now, Jehoshaphat was a good king, as I say. He reigned for 25 years. He did one or two foolish things, but generally speaking, his life uh, is commended in Scripture, and we're told that his heart was right before God. In fact, in 2 Chronicles 20, the previous chapter, we read of how the Lord, because partly because of the faithfulness of Jehoshaphat, but also because of the people who obeyed Jehoshaphat and obeyed the Lord, gave them a great victory over the Philistines. Now that's very significant for what happens at the end of our current chapter. A good king, a good good king. And when he faced crisis, what did he do? Well, 2 Chronicles 20 verse 3, Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord Even out of all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. That's a great thing, isn't it? What a wonderful thing if we saw that kind of thing happen today. When crises happened, he sought the Lord, Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was fair in his dealings with his children. 
However, 15, within 15 years of his death, his son, his grandson, and his daughter-in-law managed to bring the kingdom almost to the edge of disaster. It was not a good time. Now, it seems that Jehoram did not show his true colors until after his father's death. Verse 13, what does Elijah say? He has walked in the way of the kings of Israel, not has walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, and has made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to go whoring like to the wardens of the house of Ahab, and also has slain thy brethren of thy father's house, which were better than thyself. His brothers were better than him. Elijah, Elijah says that in the letter. It seems, from all that we know about his brethren, that, he was, that they were indeed followers of the Lord. They had followed their father, Jehoshaphat, and they were good, it seems. Now, in those days, we, are, we, are, we have to realize this, and I hope that you, don't, you aren't confused by this. I'll try and make this as simple as I can. But in those days, there were two kings called Jehoram, or Joram, as it's sometimes translated, and two kings called Ahaziah. That makes life very complicated. Let me just tell you, Ahab, wicked King Ahab, who sinned and did worse than even Jeroboam, who led the people of Israel to sin, wicked Ahab in the north, had two sons and a daughter, Ahaziah, Jehoram, and Ataliah. Jehoshaphat's eldest son, Jehoshaphat's eldest son was called Jehoram, that's the man in this chapter, and at least six other sons listed in verse 2. This Jehoram, Jehoph Jehoshaphat's son Jehoram, married Atalia, the daughter of Ahab. She was a wicked woman. She followed in, her, in the footsteps of her mother Jezebel. And they had a son whom they called Ahaziah, whether that was after Ahab's son Ahaziah, I don't know. So we've got an Ahaziah in Ahab's family and an Ahaziah in Jehoram's family, in Jehoshaphat's grandson. And, they, they, and Ahaziah had a number of sons. The youngest of his sons was Joash, King Joash, whom we meet later in the account. Well, that kind of background, I hope you've just at least got the gist of what's happening and that you don't get confused if you read uh, in Kings of another Jehoram and another uh, Ahaziah and you can't work it all out. Well, uh, don't worry, there are, there are uh, when, when you understand the, the, how it all fits together, it all makes sense. Um, and I can assure you it does make sense, even if I haven't made it very clear just now. Let's just have a look then at uh, this chapter and this man. Firstly, my first heading is this, Jehoram the man. And I have a number of things to say about him. Jehoram the man. Here is the first thing. He had a good father and a good grandfather. Both followed the Lord. 2 Chronicles chapter 20 and verses 31 to 32 tell us about this as they assess Jehoshaphat's life. And Jehoshaphat reigned over Judah. He was 30 and 5 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 20 and 5 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Azuba, the daughter of uh, Shilhi. And he walked in the way of Asa his father, and departed not from it, doing that which was right in the sight of the Lord. 
Howbeit the high places were not taken away, for as yet the people had not prepared their hearts unto the God of their fathers. The tragedy was the people didn't always follow the king. But, but uh, Jehoshaphat is commended as he dies. That's his testimony of God's word about him, that he was a good man, that he walked in the way of Asa, he father, uh, his father, and both of them did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, highly commended. So Jehoram had a good father. Secondly, he had a great inheritance. Verse 3, Jehoshaphat gave to his sons, all his sons, great gifts of silver and gold and of precious things with the fenced cities in Judah, but the kingdom he gave to Jehoram because he was the firstborn. He was the one in line to the throne. He was the heir to the throne. Now we know something about this and we're told a bit more about it uh, in the book of Kings. In 2 Kings chapter 1 and verse 17, we read that Ahaziah, the other Ahaziah, died according to the word of the Lord which Elijah had spoken. Because he had no son, Jehoram, that is Ahab's son Jehoram, became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. So we've got Ahab's son Jehoram in, as ruling over the northern kingdoms, and we've got Jehoshaphat's son, also called Jehoram, reigning over the southern kingdom. So uh, that's why people get confused sometimes about what's going on. But in 2 Kings chapter 3 and verse 1, we read, Now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel at Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. And if we work out the dates and the, and the timing, and I'm not going to give you a lecture on that now, but if we work out the dates and the timing, it seems that Jehoshaphat and Jehoram reigned together. They had a joint reign for some eight years. Now, that was quite common in the Old Testament uh, and in, in that time. So much so that we read in 2 Kings 8, Verses 16 and 17, now in the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Jehoshaphat having been king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, began to reign as king in Judah. And they, Jehoshaphat wasn't dead yet, so they were reigning together. And he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. So what can we say about this man, Jehoram? He had the opportunity for eight years to reign with his father and to see what a godly father did in his reign and rule and leadership. It would be accepted as firstborn that the government would pass to him as the firstborn and at his father's death he would take over the kingdom. So Jehoshaphat does the, a very wise thing and he works with him and trains him up to do the job. Now it's a great privilege when you have that opportunity. I had the privilege in my last church before I retired to train up the man who followed me. And he was with me for, for two years as minister in training, and then he was two years my assistant. And now he's the pastor of the church where I was pastor. And when I retired, I handed over to him, and we ordained him and, and inducted him into the church. That was a great blessing, and I'm just thrilled to bits to see uh, how he's going on with the Lord and how he's preaching, and it's great, and it's good. And it's a good way to train, to put people under the inspiration, and, and well, I don't know about inspiration in my case, but uh, the influence of, 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 of men who've had years of preaching and ministry. And that's a good way to learn. 
when I was a youngster, I did an apprenticeship. I mentioned this this morning as an electronics engineer. I did an apprenticeship. What do you do? You work alongside. One of the things you do is work alongside older men who know what they're doing, and they teach you the trade. Now, I had more than that because I had to go to college, and I did, I, I did uh, 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 qualifications as well and other things. But part of the process was to learn from men who knew what to do, and you learnt on the job. And it was very helpful and very instructive. And uh, my son also trained as an electronic engineer. And I still reckon that I can solder things better than he can. But there we are. Because I was taught how to do it properly. And he did it with, in, an, in a university set it, setting rather than an apprenticeship setting. So he never had that hands-on training in the same way. Now, he's a good, he's a good uh, engineer. I'm not, not uh, please, I'm not, uh, you understand, I'm not, I've got to be careful, this is recorded, isn't it? <laughs> but there we are. Anyway, I'm sure he would, he, would, he would acknowledge that. But it's good to learn from other people, isn't it? That's the point I'm making. And here is, here is Jehoram. He has the opportunity of working for eight years under the rule, as it were, in second command to his, to his father. Actually, that raises another thing which is just worth mentioning, because we find sometimes in the Old Testament that those who reign are called princes. Now, when we think of princes, we think in terms of Prince Charles, who is not reigning yet, but is being trained up. But in the Bible, prince often means ruler, one who rules alongside with his father. When the Lord Jesus Christ is called the Prince of Peace, we're not saying he's somehow second in command, because he is also king of kings. But in the Bible, the word prince is often used to the one who is the ruler. There is something dramatically important and significant about it in a way that we perhaps uh, in, in, in our British situation wouldn't appreciate in the same way. And here is, as you might say, the prince, Jehoram, reigning with his father and being trained on the job. And yet, what good does it do him? What good does it do him? He had a great inheritance. Thirdly, he experienced a gracious God. Now, this is very important, and I hope you understand this and appreciate this. Look at verse 7. What does the Lord say? How be it the Lord, capital letters L-O-R-D, Jehovah Yahweh, the Lord, that special name given to the God, uh, the true and living God that was never used of any other gods. The word God is used in it of the pagan gods sometimes. But this word Jehovah, Lord, Yahweh, was never used in that way. It is a special name for God. The Lord would not destroy the house of David because of a covenant that he had made with David, and as he promised to give a light to him and to his sons forever. Now we read, of course, uh, in our reading in Hebrews, and I'll come back to that later, about not despising the covenant. And we need to understand that right through the scriptures, there is a covenantal principle that is running right the way through uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament, speaking, of course, of the new covenant, or what is called the everlasting covenant, which is finally and wonderfully and gloriously fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. God makes covenant promises with his people. And the significance of those covenant promises that God's word will be fulfilled perfectly and finally, and you cannot escape from his covenant promises. 
And that means if you're a Christian, you come under the blessings of his covenant promises. But if you are unrepentant and ungodly, you come under the curses of those covenant promises. That is why it is so important to understand. Now, I'm not here to give you a, to give you a, a lecture on covenant theology. That would take uh, too long. I lecture on it uh, 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 in, in some of my lecturing, and, and we have a, a course of 24 or more lectures on the matter, so I'm not dealing with that in, in detail. But the principle of God's covenant grace follows throughout the whole Scripture. It's right there back in the very early chapters of Genesis. We sometimes call it the covenant formula. I will be their God and they will be my people. And it runs right through the Bible. And it is there right in the book of Revelation, right at the end. God's covenant blessings. And God reminds us of the covenant. And God always keeps his covenant. Deuteronomy chapter 17 and verses 18 to 20 required every Davidic king to write out his own copy of the law of the covenant and to read it regularly. He couldn't get a scribe or a, a, an underling to do it. He was to do it himself. He was obligated to do it. Let me read the words to you. I've got them here from the New King James. Forgive me. I know you're following in the authorized, but it's very similar, but slightly, slightly easier. Also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests, the Levites. And it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom he and his children in the midst of Israel. Now notice this came with a great promise. This was before the king was established. Moses is instigating what should happen when God gives them a king. God had promised that they would have a king. Now whether Jehoram had done this or not, we are not told, but he was obligated to do it. He was obligated to do it as a king sitting on the throne of David. And the Lord tells us here in this verse that because of God's covenant made with David, God will fulfill his covenant. And that means the blessings of the covenant fall on the obedient and the curses of the covenant upon the disobedient. Jehoram had no excuse not to know what God required. And God in his grace deals with him. Fourthly, however, he had a bad heart, verse 4, when he was risen up to the kingdom of his father. This is after Jehoshaphat had died. Told that in verse 1, he strengthened himself and slew all his brothers, brethren with the sword and divers also of the princes of Israel. Remember what I said about princes earlier on, princes. This was bloodthirsty and wicked slaughter. He had a bad heart. Fifthly, he had a bad wife. Now, I don't know about you, my friends, but sometimes I look at some of my friends and I see the women they've married and I think, why on earth did he marry that? <laughs> Sorry. 
And sometimes, I mean, thankfully in the providence of God it works out, but sometimes it doesn't, does it? Sometimes it doesn't. And people can make foolish choices. Now, please don't take that the wrong way, and I'm not here to give you marriage guidance counsel, although if you want to talk to me afterwards, that's another matter. But here was a man who deliberately married Ahab, wicked King Ahab's wife, a daughter, Atalia. She was a wicked woman, as her mother Jezebel had been. And as the result, he who sows the wind reaps the whirlwind. And what happens? The Edomites revolt against him, verses 8 to 10. He tried to defeat them, but he was unsuccessful. And the city of Libna rises up against him. And why? Verse 10, the end of the verse. Because he had forsaken the Lord God of his fathers. And God allows this judgment to come upon him. And worse was to follow. So that tells you a little bit about Jehoram the man. Secondly, Elijah's letter, Elijah's letter, verses 12 to 15. Now we need to say one or two, we need to ask one or two questions of this. Three things I want to ask. Firstly, how did it come to be written? Almost certainly, forgive me, I'm not going to go into the history and the dates now, but almost certainly, it is possible that Elijah might still have been alive, but it's very, very unlikely, very difficult to fit the chronology in and Elijah's transformation to heaven in, in 2 Kings 2 with these dates. It seems that Elijah had already gone to heaven by the time of the events of this chapter. It, it, it seems almost impossible. I know that one or two people have tried to argue that maybe he was still alive, but if you read what the Bible says and you accept the chronology of the Old Testament as I do, it is very difficult to say that Elijah was still alive at this time. So how did this letter come to be written? Is it really from Elijah? Well, of course, some who deny the inspiration of Scripture say that this must have been the figment of some fertile imagination. They argue that Elijah was only a prophet to the northern kingdom, uh, so how could he, uh, how could he have written uh, a letter to the king of the south, of the southern kingdom? And of course he was no longer living. Well, in actual fact, we have to be careful about that, because in 1 Kings 19, Elijah flees to Beersheba, and then he travels on to Sinai, which is in the far south. So to say that Elijah never went to the south is nonsense, it's actually historically inaccurate. Now, of course, we don't accept that because we accept the inspiration of God's holy word. Some argue that this was a mistake for Elisha, for Elisha and actually it should have been Elisha, but there's no textual evidence for that, whatever. Not one wit, not one iota, no, not one jot nor one tittle will be altered. There is not one evidence, a stroke of evidence for that in the Hebrew anywhere. Some say it must have been another prophet of the same name. But again, there is no evidence that at this time there was anyone, anyone else called Elijah, never mind any other prophet. There is one other Elijah that comes later in the Bible, but that's in the time of Ezra. And he wasn't, certainly wasn't the, this Elijah. Some have even argued that it was written from, from heaven and delivered supernaturally. Well, I don't think that, I, I know that is possible, but I don't think that is likely. But there are very good reasons for accepting that this was the very same Elijah who confronted Ahab. And this comes with a note of authority. 
Even the style of the letter agrees with the other evidence we have in the Bible of Elijah's prophecies. How did it come to be written? Well, all right, I know I haven't finished answering that, but it, my second question is this. When was it written? When was it written? And I think it is likely, it is probable, that it was written just before Elijah went to heaven. From the verses I've already read from, from, uh, from uh, Kings, uh, 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 detailing these events in 2 Kings chapter 117, of course, Elijah was still alive then. Uh, and from 2 Kings 3 and verse 1, we know that Elijah was still on earth. It's certainly probable that Elijah was still on earth when Jehoram came to the throne. And Elijah knows because he is the prophet of God and God gives him inspiration and God reveals to him just how wicked this man will be. And if we believe in God's revelation and God's prophecy, there is no difficulty in understanding that Elijah writes this letter as a prophetic letter, knowing how Jehoram will turn out as God reveals to Elijah what he needs to write in this letter. And it is written as a prophecy while Jehoshaphat was still alive, but saved until the moment is right. Probably, probably delivered by Elijah to Elisha to hand over uh, to Jehoram when he becomes king when Jehoshaphat, after Jehoshaphat has died, possibly, or possibly one of the sons of the prophets to be delivered to Je Jehoram at the right time. You see, God knows what everything. He knows the future. God knows what is going to be happening. We know from the Old Testament how many prophecies were made about the coming of the Messiah, and they're all fulfilled perfectly. So what problem do you have? I trust you don't have any problem in accepting that God can reveal to Elijah exactly how Jehoram will turn out and to write a letter ready to be delivered to the man when he needs to receive it, when he needs to receive it. God knew what Jehoram would do. And God inspires Elijah to write this letter to send to him. Now what was, it what was its message? Well, my friends, it was a message from eternity. It was a bolt from the blue. It was a charge of aggravated idolatry. It was not simply that Jehoram had forsaken the ways of his father. He led the whole nation astray. The pure worship of the living God, which his father and grandfather had established, were exchanged for the evils of the house of Ahab. Ahab, who had led the northern kingdom, in, kingdom into evil, greater than the evil of Jeroboam, who made Israel to sin, who goes down in the sacred record as the most despicable, godless man who despised the word of God. And here, as a bolt from the blue, as it were, from Elijah comes a message to Jehoram of doom, of doom from the departed prophet. A thunderclap to the wicked king's heart. This letter, if anything, should have galvanized him to repentance. But as one preacher I heard say on one occasion, it seems likely that all Jehoram would do was rip it up. Now we don't know whether he did or not, and maybe that's another preacher's flight of fancy. But that's the attitude. It should have galvanized him to repentance. But he did nothing of the sort. He hardens his heart. My friends, what an awesome thing it is to harden your heart against the word of God. 
the covenant promises and curses of God. And if you disobey his word, you come under his judgment, his curses. Jehoram, wake up, man. Can't you see the folly of what you have done? Well, that leads me to the third thing I want to say. Jehoram the man, Elijah's letter, thirdly, the consequences of Jehoram's rebellion. The consequences of Jehoram's rebellion. Well, there were two immediate consequences. Firstly, there was political crisis, verses 16 to 17. What happens? The Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, the living God, stirred up against Jehoram the spirit of the Philistines and of the Arabians that were near the Ethiopians. And they came up into Judah and break into it and carried away all the substance that was found in the king's house and his sons also and his wives, so that there was never a son left him, save Jehoahaz, the youngest of his sons. Do you understand this, my friends? The Philistines had been almost totally decimated at the end of David's reign. Now they had increased somewhat in power. And what does God do? In Jehoshaphat's time, he grants to Jehoshaphat a great and mighty victory over the Philistines. It was almost the end of them. But now God again raises up the Philistines to come as a judgment upon Jehoram. What a terrible, terrible thing this was. The Philistines who had been so utterly defeated now invaded Judah and plundered it. And this was the Lord's judgment upon Jehoram. Political crisis. But the second thing, of course, are the consequences are personal calamity. Verse 17. They came and they found uh, his sons, his wives, they took, there was never a son left him, save Jehuahaz, the youngest of his sons. His own sons and wives are carried away. After all this, the Lord smote him in his bowels with an incurable disease. And even the description of it in our English Bibles is pretty awful. It's pretty awful. He began his reign by massacring his brothers. He ended his reign by losing his own sons and wives and dying in a particularly horrible way. And even the nation were glad to see him gone. Fancy that. Verse 20. Literally, departed without being desired. The literally, the Hebrew is, and to no one's sorrow he departed. Nobody shed a tear when he died. Nobody cared tuppence. Can I say that? When he died. What a terrible epitaph. What a terrible epitaph. And he's not even buried in the sepulchres of the kings. What dishonor. What a terrible end. Why did he not wake up? Why did he not hear the word from Elijah? Why did he not repent? What causes a man to be so mad that he can defy the living God and think he can get away with it? It's like those terrible, those frightening, those fearsome words in Isaiah, uh, which I was uh, preaching on recently in Isaiah 28, when the people who said, uh, they said, as it were, we have made a covenant with death and with hell, and we are in agreement. And what they were saying is this, death, you leave me alone and I'll leave you alone. You cannot make a covenant like that with death, because death comes. 
God says in his word in Isaiah 28 that the flood will come and wash away their refuse of, of, of lies like a deluge, like a foundation, because they have made a covenant with death. My friends, you cannot do that. And here is this man, and he dies, and nobody weeps a tear for his death. Terrible, terrible. Now, I've taken many funerals in my lifetime. When we were down in Cornwall in St. Ives, uh, our church was very much like the local uh, nonconformist parish church in a sense. And I was asked to take the funeral of many, many people. And uh, in most cases, there would be a big turnout from people if it was a well-known person in the town. But there were one or two funerals I took. I remember one funeral I had to take up at the crematorium in Truro. And there were only three people at the, at the funeral. And I thought, what a, what a situation. What a situation. Nobody even cares that this person has died. Nobody is even interested. My friends, it's awful when that happens. And yet here is a man who was so ungodly that nobody shed a tear when he died. Fourthly, what do we learn from this incident? What do we learn from this incident? Well, let me, as we draw this to a close, give you seven things. Don't worry, I'm going to go through them quickly. Firstly, godless, godliness is not hereditary. Verse 12, listen what Elijah says in his letter. Thus says the Lord God of David, thy father. David, thy father. Goes back to his great, great, how many? I'm not sure how many greats, grandfather, David. David, your father. Uh, uh, because thou hast not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat, your father, nor in the ways of Asa, king of Judah, but hast walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, and hast made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to go a warring and sowing. Godliness is not hereditary. Jehoram had a godly background, at least grandfather and grandfather. I am so thankful to God that I have uh, a, a, we might say a pedigree, I don't mean that in the wrong sense, but spiritual pedigree and sense, going back through many generations. Uh, one of my, my great-great, I can't remember how many great-grandfathers, was one of the seceders with Philpot and Tiptaft, if you know anything about the history. And God in his kindness has been very good to my family and to me and, and to others. But my friends, godliness is not, bought, is not it doesn't, doesn't come to you by osmosis, it doesn't come to you by birth. And you can be born into a Christian family, but you can deny the truth and you can fall away from the, from the, from the grace of God. It is not her, 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 hereditary. Godliness is not genetic. Each of us individually, one by one, need to come face to face with the work of God and find that salvation. Oh, don't fall into the folly of this wicked, wicked man. Secondly, God knows all and sees all. Verse 13, God lays out what has happened. We cannot sin in secret. And God had it written down by Elijah before Jehoram had got to this state. Because God knew what he was going to do. God knows the end from the beginning. God knows and sees all. You cannot sin in secret, my friend. Some years ago, when my grandchildren were younger than they are now, we went to one of their birthday parties, and one of the mothers was talking 
to my wife and I uh, at this time, and they, she was talking about her two boys who were about the age of my eldest grandson, um, and they were quite young in those days. And they were say, she was saying how sometimes they would say, uh, when they wanted to do something naughty, they would wait. They would say, and sometimes she would overhear them say, wait till mummy's out of the way and we'll get away with it. <laughs> My friends, that's what we are all like, isn't it? That's what we're all like. We think we can get away with it. God sees and he knows you cannot escape from the eye of God. And I remember saying to the mother, we, said, we were talking together and having a little bit of a laugh, and I say, there's the evidence of original sin. <laughs> In the right way, my friends, we cannot sin in isolation and we cannot sin in secret. Thirdly, the consequences of sin are far-reaching. Verse 14, Behold, with a great plague will the Lord smite thy people and thy children and thy wives and all thy goods. One sin affects others and our sin affects others. Don't think that you can get away with your sin. It affects others. Fourthly, punishment of unforgiven sin is inevitable. Verse 15, thou shalt have great sickness by disease of thy bowels until thy bowels fall out by reason of sickness day by day. We will not escape at the last. And often we do not escape here either because God's covenant stands. You will either be blessed by obedience or judged by rebellion and disobedience. Fifthly, God will judge us by the light of his word. Jehoshaphat had been a great and grand example of the wisdom of following God's word. But Jehoram had rejected all that he had seen in the witness of his father and grandfather. Sixthly, men ignore God's word at their peril. Look at verses 19 and 20. It came to pass that by process of time after the end of two years, his bowels fell out by reason of his sickness, and he died of sore diseases, and to no one's sorrow he departed. We read in that passage in Hebrews, didn't we? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. A fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Don't ignore the word of God. Seven, our only hope is to come in repentance and faith and cry for mercy. What was our Lord's great message as he came preaching the gospel, the beginning of Mark's gospel? He comes and what does he do? He begins and he says in Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. My friends, that is still the message to hear today. And Jehoram had opportunity to repent, but he ignored it. He ignored it. What folly, what stupidity. Isaiah 55, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. You know, sometimes I meet people who say to me, they say to me, there's no gospel in the Old Testament. My friends, you read Isaiah 55 and you read those two verses. They're two of, two of, I was going to say the best verse, not, they're not because there are lots of verses in the Old Testament, but they're one of, the, one of the greatest examples of God's yearning appeal of gospel grace in the Old Testament. Jehoram reads the letter and he hardens his heart against the God. Only almighty grace can overcome the hard hearts of men and women. 
Brothers, sisters, men and women, boys and girls, do not harden your heart against the word of God. How we need to cry to the Lord our God to remember us and have mercy upon us and our wicked land, our wicked nation. Now there's a wonderful book which is not very well known today, a book by, on Elijah uh, by a man called F.W. Krumaker. It's been translated, it's out of print. You can, you can actually, I've discovered last night, you can actually find it on the internet. You can download it for nothing. So you don't even have to go to buy it. It's a wonderful book, one of the best commentaries on Elijah that you can find. And A.W. Pink's The Life of Elijah is basically an updated version of Krumaker's work. But even A.W. Pink doesn't deal with this letter but Krumaka does. And although the, the language is a little bit old-fashioned, I hope I'm going to read this section to you. I hope that you will take the wonders of the grace of God revealed, even in these terrible events here, as Krumaka describes it. Listen, he says this, Thus was the writing of doom accomplished to the very letter, and not a syllable of it remained unfulfilled. Mark this, he says, you impenitent sinners that are still far from God, a writing like that prophetic one lies also at your door. It begins, He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. It continues, and you see how many times he quotes scripture, and those of you who know the authorized version will know that as he quotes it. Basically, he's just pulling verses out of scripture to make this point. This is the Bible. This is the, the, the piling on and piling on of the wonder of the grace of God. It begins, he that believeth on the Son. It continues, the lamp of the wicked shall be put out and their feet hasten to destruction. It concludes, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And its signature is this, thus speaks the true and faithful witness. Well, may you tremble, for none of his words fall to the ground, but blessed be his name, the threatening is not unconditional. And then he begins to quote scripture again. It only runs thus, if you will not hear, and if you will not lay it to heart, Therefore rejoice in thy respite, O sinner, and thy hope of escape. The manslayer is behind thee, but there is a city of refuge. Laid hold on the hope set before you in the gospel. Repair to the cross of Jesus, and thou shalt see the handwriting of doom nailed to that cross. And instead of it, you shall receive another writing into your, into your heart. And hear the gracious words, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. That's Krumaka. God's law stands. God's covenant promises are true. If you reject his word, then you come under the curses of the covenant. But if you receive his word and turn to him in repentance and faith, he has promised to receive you and bless you with all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. My friend, these words here are a solemn warning, but they are a great encouragement, for God is still the forgiving God. He is still the God of grace. What does he say? Come unto me, all ye that weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Thank God there's a way of escape. And for those who fly to Christ, he says, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. I have redeemed you. 
I have called you by your name. You are mine. My friend, if you do not know this gospel, if you do not know this Savior, I urge you to hear these words and to pray that God by his Holy Spirit will come to you and make you a new person in him and find indeed the glory and the joy and the wonder of the blessings of covenantal mercy poured out upon your head and in your life. Amen.